Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Ophthalmologist Dr. Strauss has seen firsthand how the metaverse is helping surgeons practice the procedures to treat cataracts. Cataracts are the primary cause of avoidable blindness. He works with a virtual reality training platform developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International to help surgeons develop the muscle memory they need. The result? More confident, capable surgeons. And even more importantly... Patients who can see. Explore more stories like Dr. Strauss's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. The following podcast is a Dear Media production. She just looked at me and was like, Jez, why are you crying? And I was like, I am so freaking tired of fighting. And she just looked at me and she went like pretty straight faced, like, Jez, what do you think the definition of fighting is? Because I don't think that you've been fighting. I think you're only surviving. And that's only when you learn how to fight, that's when the change that you're longing to see is going to happen. Hey, everybody, and welcome to RealPod. I'm Victoria Garrick, former D1 athlete and mental health and body image advocate. Every Wednesday, I'll be bringing you awesome guests, weekly inspiration, and the realest conversations around everything and anything. Now let's get real. Hey guys, it's Victoria. Before we get into today's episode, I wanted to announce something extremely special. Today, my hashtag real post hoodies are live and available on my website, victoriagarrick.com slash merch. I released two hoodies, black and white, that really embody and represent everything I stand for. And the hashtag real post authenticity movement I started three years ago online, which led me to where I am today and even inspired me to start this podcast, Real Pod. So if you are interested in learning more about the hoodies I released today and possibly purchasing your own, which you would look so cute in if you ask me, head over to victoriagarrick.com slash merch. Hey, everybody, and welcome back to RealPod. How are you doing today? Are you well? Are you unwell? If you listened to my solo episode last week where I gave an update on my mental health, you would know that I was sitting at a nice tweener just right in between the two. And we're going to continue this very important conversation about mental health in today's episode as well. We have an incredible woman who is truly changing the world joining us. Now, before I continue any further, I do want to give a trigger warning. Today's episode will detail suicide and mention sexual abuse. So please continue listening with caution if these topics are sensitive to you. Now, September is National Suicide Prevention Awareness Month. And joining us today is one of the most prominent and active suicide awareness activists right now. Having overcome childhood abuse and multiple suicide attempts, Jazz Thornton has now dedicated her life to speaking hope and creating change in the mental health space. Jazz co-founded a nonprofit called Voices of Hope, and her unique experience and meaningful message has gained worldwide recognition, leading her to the TED Talk stage, writing her own book called Stop Surviving, Start Fighting, 
And now she is the main feature in a brand new documentary film titled The Girl on the Bridge. And this film was released this week on September 21st. So go watch this film. It's absolutely incredible. And it's an honor to have Jazz with us today. I hope her story will move you and remind you that no matter what you are going through or how small you might feel, that you are not alone. Without further ado, let's get into this episode with Jazz Thornton. Jazz, thank you so much for being here today. I have been looking so forward to this. All the work you're doing for mental health is absolutely incredible. And like I said before we started, I feel like your room you're sitting in, I know so well from your amazing TikToks. And it looks great. How are you doing today? I am good, thank you. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. I can't wait to have this conversation because like you've said, suicide is an epidemic. Obviously, mental health, mental illness, all those things need to be talked about. And the way you're bringing light to it is so inspiring, especially because you are someone who knows what it feels like to be in those dark places. And then to now have the life that you've created is such an inspiration. Is it surreal to you to think about everything you're doing now, knowing where you've been? Oh, absolutely. I think sometimes I find myself because I it is running a million miles an hour, kind of stopping and being like, wait a minute, if I had even, you know, been told that I would be doing a quarter of this, you know, five years ago, I would have laughed and been like, no, that's impossible. So it definitely takes me off guard sometimes. And it's, yeah, it's pretty humbling to to know where I've come from and what I'm able to do now. And this has been something that has been a part of your entire life. Unlike some people, you've expressed experiencing trauma and pain that dates back to being three years old, your earliest years in life. When was the first time you ever felt like any sort of mental health struggle or pain? I think that's kind of two very different moments, um, mental health struggle and and pain. I share a lot about when I was three years old and, and what had happened there you know, that I was sexually abused and that there was a whole lot of stuff kind of going on at at home and and things like that, which is most definitely the first time that I felt pain. In regards to mental health, it was around probably like 11 that I began to realize that the way that I was thinking and responding to things probably wasn't normal. And that led to my first ever suicide attempt being at 12. So that would have been the first time that I was dealing with mental health issues. At that time, you're so young. Are you able to process why you're feeling pain or even what could result from a suicide attempt? Or what were you, what was happening at that moment? Just these unbearable feelings that as a child, it's hard to internalize what's happening. Yeah, it was, it was difficult. And I I don't think that as a 12 year old, I knew that if I did this, I would never wake up again. I don't think that's a reality that you can kind of comprehend. But what I do know is that when that was happening, all I wanted was for the pain to stop. All I wanted was to wake up and not feel like this anymore. And my mind had said the only way to do that is to not be here anymore. And so, yeah, I don't think I knew the reality of what was going on, but I I don't think I cared. I just, I just wanted the pain to end. Did you feel lonely in your childhood at school? I'd have to imagine that maybe not having those friendships or not feeling like you fit in might have contributed to ending pain. Absolutely. Yeah. I didn't have many friends at all in school. And I think being alone is 
one of the, I think, kind of biggest commonalities through my entire story from when I was a kid, being out on the playground and watching kids all hang out together and I would go be with the teacher because I had no one to go and sit with or I would go and hide in the drama room and things like that. But also as I got older, that was a common thing as well where I would use that as a tactic to isolate myself. And, you know, when I was feeling bad, I would just not talk to anyone because I had kind of grown up learning that. Yeah. And loneliness, it's shocking the statistics about people who are lonely, something like they attribute it to smoking a certain amount of cigarette packets a day, or it correlates with a shorter lifespan. It's wild how just not feeling connected as a human being can equate to these similar things like nicotine or drugs. I remember reading that and thinking it's shocking. And there's so many things about mental health that are so common and so detrimental, yet It's not something that's talked about. And I know something you've mentioned before is to mention the word suicide on television or something at the time was illegal. Is that true? What were you referring to? Yeah. So here in New Zealand, and I'm pretty sure this is similar worldwide. I know that New Zealand was a lot more stricter on it, but it was illegal to say the word suicide in media. So whenever anyone did take their own life, it would just be referred to as a a non-accidental death. And yeah, so they, they weren't allowed to talk about it at all. It was like literally against the law. Uh, and that only changed probably like eight to 10 years ago. So it's very recent that we were allowed to start talking about it. But even then, it's still pretty touch and go. So when you were a teenager, I'm assuming you weren't telling people how you were feeling. Absolutely not. And I didn't think anyone else was feeling like that either. I literally thought I was the only one because of the fact no one was talking about it because of the fact it was illegal to talk about in New Zealand. That's crazy. It's not, even if you wanted to talk about it, it's illegal. Talk about just creating stigma. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, you know, as a, as a teenager going through this, you're like, well, I'm not going to say anything to anyone because no one's going to understand because I'm the only one in the whole world going through this. But little did I know, you know, that our statistics are horrendous globally for this. What was your teenage years like? turning into a woman, becoming an adult, navigating your mental health? Did it get better? Did it get worse? What was that sort of midlife experience for you? Because that's a really shaping time, like 16, 17, 18. A lot can happen. (laughs) Well, fun story. When I was 16, I grew up in a very small town in the South Island of New Zealand. And when I was 16, I was working at a fish and chip shop at the time as well as going to school. And I saved up and kind of was like, if I am going to do anything with my life, I have to get out of here. And so I saved up and I moved to Auckland, which is in another island of New Zealand by myself. So I kind of, you know, gathered everything that I had into one suitcase because it's all I could afford to get on the plane with, flew up and I found a house online, enrolled myself in high school and I didn't know a single person up here. And so doing that at 16 was you know, at the time I thought I was so old and I was like, I know what I'm doing. And then I got up to Auckland and I was like, oh, things like power and water aren't free. Like I have to pay for these things. I have to learn how to adult really fast and I have to grow up really fast because suddenly I'm alone in this big world. And between kind of 16 and I would say 16 and 18 was probably the hardest years of my life. In the first kind of 12 months of living here in Auckland, I was homeless. I was at women's refuges. Uh, I was put in hotels and motels by police and I lived in 11 houses. And so as a 16-year-old, that instability, you know, there was no way that I could develop any kind of strong mental capacity when that is going on. I also had like no money. I had nothing. So, you know, when I was homeless, I just not like I could get a place because I didn't have 
anything and there were nights where I couldn't afford to eat and things like that. So the teenage years, I think, were pretty rough and that's when things really started to escalate and I was finding myself in hospital every few weeks and police would be coming and smashing windows in my house to come and get to me because they thought that I wasn't alive on the other side. And so, yeah, I think that my teenage years definitely were a lot rougher than what most people knew and what I was portraying on social media. But yeah. Did you have any points of contact, like a a friend, a best friend, a cousin, a family, anyone who you checked in with during this three-year period or was Jazz all on her own? Pretty much all on my own, but that was my own doing. So I had this tendency where I would bring someone in and then as soon as they would get to know me too well, I'd cut them off. Because I had this idea that if someone got to know me as well as I know me, then they're going to hate me as much as I hate me. Mm-hmm. And so I'll only bring them into a certain degree. And then if anything was to get bad, I'd cut them off. And so, yeah, I, I definitely had people that I would meet in you know, school and stuff like that. But I never stayed in one place long enough to maintain long friendships with anyone. Where did that come from? Because obviously something like that, you have to either have felt abandoned before or like you've revealed yourself vulnerably in a moment and weren't received the way you wanted. Can you track that back? I think that there's a couple of moments that I can track back. And one of them definitely in regards to the kind of abandonment feeling was going back to when I was three and I had wet the bed one night and my dad, my biological dad had got really angry about it. And the next day he went and dropped me off at kindergarten preschool and he was supposed to come pick me up after that, but he didn't. And I never saw him again. And my, my three-year-old mind had taken this and gone, if I do anything wrong, then people are going to leave. And I just thought, you know, that my dad had left me because I had wet the bed, which now that I'm 25, I know that that is not the reality, but I couldn't comprehend that as a three-year-old. And so I think that as I got older, I would have these perceptions that if I do anything wrong, if people get to know the real me, if people know my faults, then they're going to leave me. And the other one, which I think is, was actually really rough for me and something I didn't actually realize it had such a huge impact until I was writing my book. And that was when I was about seven-ish years old, I had these two friends that were living, kind of one was living behind us and one was living beside us on our street. And we all became friends. And then One day, um, one of them had come up to my house and she was like, oh, do you want to go down to the park? And I was like, yeah. And so we, um, we ran down the street and down the alleyway, which was leading to the park. And as we got down there, the other girl was standing there and the girl that had come and got me, she was like, oh, she's here. I don't want to see you anymore. Like you can go home. I would prefer to play with her instead. And so what I learned straight after that was that they had organized it. So they had organized that this girl would come to my house, pretend that she wanted to play with me would go down to the park, see the other one and then be like, no, you go home. Like I'm going to see this girl. And so, you know, as I got older, that was also, I think a huge thing that I never realized the impact that that had on me and my distrust in people and, you know, group, like groups of friends. That's still something that I battled with until maybe like a year and a half ago. That breaks my heart to hear and being excluded as a kid and the way we, piece together, okay, well, A plus B equals C, you know, they must not want to hang out with me because of this, or I must be unlovable or unworthy. Or even as you said, you didn't even realize the weight and the magnitude that this one instance had until years later writing your book. So things happen in our lives every single day that we put in this weird memory or emotional box in our brain and affect us moving forward. 
Oh, absolutely. And, you know, there's been a lot of moments in my kind of last few years, I guess, where I would respond in a certain way. For example, I was managing this event one time with people that are very close to me and I sent them on stage like 30 seconds too early. And my mind went, oh my gosh, they're going to hate me. And I remember afterwards being like, where did that come from? That is such an extreme reaction, Jazz. Like, what the heck? And it was, you know, this unburied thing that had kind of festered of that, oh my gosh, if I do anything wrong, then they're going to hate me. But I sent them on 20 seconds too early. My brain had just... I totally relate to that. Just wanting to feel liked and accepted at all times. And I think we all want that, especially when we're growing up. So I've definitely had those thoughts of, are they going to like me? Am I saying this thing right? But when you first said you were leaving at 16, you said, I couldn't stay here. I wanted to do something more with my life. That sounds pretty optimistic. Like I'm just going to pack up and go see what lies in the world. And then a few years later, your mental health is at a really low place. And once again, you're questioning if you should be alive. So how did your mental health deteriorate? And what was like the narrative or the challenges you were facing that at the time seemed overbearing? I think that I had this perception that everything that was wrong in my life was in the town that I was in. And therefore, if I got out of the town, then everything would be okay because all of my problems are this town. And so when I moved, it was only a few weeks before things started happening again. And I was like, huh, maybe the issue is not my location. (laughs) Maybe the issue is me. There was a lot of things that kind of happened in my teenage years as things started to deteriorate. And I did, you know, I moved up here because this is like the kind of media central hub up here. I had always wanted to get into the media industry and storytelling ever since I was young because it was kind of like an escape for me and I loved it. And so that's why I chose Auckland because this is where all the the news and the journalism and like all the TV shows and stuff are made here. And so that's why I was like, okay, maybe if I can just get to that town, get to that city, then everything's going to be okay. But, you know, it definitely wasn't. And I think that the biggest issue and finding myself at my absolute lowest was a mixture of things. But one of the biggest was that one, I was now literally completely by myself, but also here in New Zealand, there's this kind of messed up system where in order to get admitted to the psych ward, you have to have like family support. They won't admit you if you don't. So I would have attempt after attempt and they would not admit me because I didn't have anyone. And so I just get put back out on the street. And so I think there's nothing quite like that to put someone at their absolute lowest. Like I'm already low. I'm already trying to get help and I'm not qualified for help because I don't have a next of kin. And that thankfully changed as soon as I turned 18 because I was no longer a minor and they would admit me, which is when I started getting admitted. But yeah. I have a few questions about this and let me know if this is too personal, but just I'm thinking people probably are wondering if you don't have anyone who's maybe looking out for you or you're living with, how are these police or the hospital becoming aware that you are in harm or you need help or you should be admitted? Is someone seeing you? Are they finding you? How does that happen? It was different most times. I tried to take my life many, many times. And some of them, I would have messaged a goodbye message to a friend, one of the people that I kind of had bought in and then would cut off eventually once I'd bought them in. So that happened a couple of times. But there was majority of the times that I tried, I didn't do it at home because I didn't want people that I knew to find me. And so people would, you know, find me spontaneously in a bush area and a forest area and things like that. And so it was an absolute miracle that I was here. There's one story that just 
uh, gets me every time. And I had gone into the middle of this forest and had gone off track. So I had kind of, you know, gone on the path and then gone way off. And I began the process of trying to take my life. No one knew that I was there. I hadn't told a single person and no one ever really goes to this area like at all. It's not a common forest walk area or anything like that. And as I was going unconscious, this man and his son were biking in this track and they decided to go off track and they found me as I was unconscious. And I don't remember literally any of it, except I woke up in the hospital three weeks later um, and I had been in a coma and the doctors were like, literally 10 more minutes unfound and you were gone. And they told me about this guy and how he had decided that day spontaneously to bike off track and that was who found me. And so there's stories like that, that just kind of blow my mind. And I'm now very thankful for, I wasn't thankful for at the time. But yeah, it was often things like that that had alerted police slash the hospital to me. Wow. That just makes you think of fate or everything happens for a reason or someone is put here to be put here. I think about that all the time. If you Have you ever seen the movie? Oh, this is a great movie with Matt Damon. The one where it's about things like this, where people, like if you forget your keys, they basically think that some higher energy has purposely misplaced your keys because they don't want you to make the bus. Because if you make the bus, you're going to meet this person and you're not supposed to meet this person. It's anyways, it's a book. It's a movie like that. It's so good. I forget what it's called. You would love it because similar to that. I want to, yes, I want to watch that. (laughs) I've got to get the name and let you know, but I definitely hearing you say that, you wonder, why did they decide to veer off? Who said it? And how did they find you? And looking back, obviously, like you said, you're so grateful for someone who has never attempted suicide or, and here's the thing, people struggle to understand it if they've never suffered with mental illness or depression. So at least for example, in in my own life, I grew up not understanding. Someone from my high school did take their life. And obviously you're sad and there's pain, but you think, how could someone do that? Why would you not want to live? You don't understand. And then in my darkest times in college, I remember this aha moment of, oh, I totally understand. Like, I know why someone would want to stop this feeling. When you say you've attempted suicide 14 times, how could you explain to someone overall how that process is like? And each time, are you writing a goodbye note? Sometimes are you hoping it's not going to be the end? Because it's a lot of times. So... I guess as someone speaking to people who don't know, how emotionally are you changing throughout each attempt? I think definitely for me, there was a pretty significant change in how I was responding emotionally. And I think that something that I will admit that is often really difficult for people to admit is that at the beginning, when I was attempting there were definitely times where I attempted and did not want to die. I just wanted to not live like this anymore. And society globally has taught us that in order to get help, you have to be either wealthy or dying. And young people know that. And so they know, like I had been turned away from system after system, getting help, psychology. I didn't get any of it unless I had tried to kill myself. And that's the only time that you would get help. And we kind of live in this society where we've been taught that crisis equals help. So when I was younger, I think that there was part of me that was like, that way they're going to know that I am struggling so much. And it's the only way that people know. And when I did it, I didn't care if I lived or died. Like I didn't care if it did kill me. I didn't care if it didn't. Like I just needed help. But as I got older, it was like understanding that that was what I was doing. I felt 
like a burden like I never had before you know if only people knew if only you know they knew that I was unlovable that I was a burden that I didn't deserve to be here and then that thought pattern completely just derailed me and my my later attempts were very serious were very much I don't want to be alive and I would be angry when I would wake up and still be here and I would be angry when you know I was found or when police got to me and things like that because I was determined to not be here and I think one of the biggest fears when you are struggling to that degree is doing it and it not working because you know the process you're about to go back into you know the hospital you know the psych ward you know these things and so it's actually like heartbreaking when it doesn't work and so you know it's it's confusing it's confusing for people who haven't felt like that because our natural human instinct is to stay alive from when you are born we do anything to stay alive and so to go against that is it's confusing but also knowing that people who do this are not selfish which is one of the biggest kind of things that people would say but as someone who has been there what I am thinking at that point and I, it is not just a thought to me it is a fact that one day you will realize very soon that the world is better off without me that you guys are better off without me it'll probably hurt for a week but then you'll be fine and that's not just something that you're like oh like this is you know the what's going to happen that's you believe that as actual fact so people that are struggling aren't thinking or feeling the same way that other people are You've said something before that reminded me of this, the internal reality doesn't match the external truth. And I think you just explained that. Yeah. And that's, it, it really is. And, you know, you've got this, this internal reality that you wholeheartedly believe that you believe is rock solid, but it's not the factual truth. It's not the external truth. What was it like to be in a psych ward or in a psychiatric unit? Because we have, once again, we have these preconceived notions in society about crazy people or psych ward. Even the term psych ward is used casually in like joking situations. So as someone who's actually lived that life, what can you say about that experience? And what was it like to be in there when you didn't want to be in there, as you just said? There, there's two different experiences that I kind of had in there. I was in multiple times and, you know, when I first got admitted into the ICU, which is the intensive care unit part of the, the psych ward, they take your hoodie strings out, they take your shoe strings off, like you can't have anything that you potentially might hurt yourself with. You feel dehumanized immediately and you get taken here in New Zealand anyway, you get taken to this like locked off ward and you're in this kind of concealed room. Everyone's only in one, one person per room. So you're not sharing rooms. and you have like this glass window so that the nurses can see you at all times, literally at all times. And they can, in the intensive care unit, it's uh, a kind of a mixture of people, but you've got people with like severe psychosis that are in there. So I remember there was like an alert bell that would go off when someone went AWOL and you would just hear like this loud buzzing all the time of people like screaming and stuff like that. And so there's definitely that side of it that is terrifying. And as an 18-year-old, I was put in the adult ward. So it was me and people that were like 50-year-old men, mm. which is terrifying because as soon as you turn 18, you're an adult. And so they don't put you in the adolescent psychiatric ward, you go straight into the straight adult one. And so that was terrifying. But the other side of it is that once you get out of the intensive care, you know, we have something called the open ward which is what I think a lot more psychiatric units are like. And it's not as scary as what everyone thinks that it is. It's actually kind of fun. It's all like open plan and there's like 
foosball tables and table tennis tables and like there's a gym and there's like art areas and there's massage chairs and things like that. It's like music rooms. And so the open <laughs> ward sounds kind of nice. <laughs> I know, like I could go there for a holiday kind of thing. Uh, it's a really bad joke, but um, yeah. So that, you know, and I you spend majority of your time in the open ward. And so that's kind of all about trying to give you a whole lot of tools and a whole lot of things to be able to manage in the outside world. And I had some horrible experiences in there with nurses who were just horrendous, but I also had some pretty incredible nurses who were amazing. And I'm also really good friends now, which you may have seen on, on TikTok, with the doctor who got me admitted to the psych ward for the last time, Dr. Steph. And so, yeah, there's like, there's cool things that have come from it, um, but it's not something that I think anyone should aspire to go to. <laughs> You said that they're trying to help you, give you the tools to become better and to hopefully heal. However, with your story, you did have repeat attempts and you did have frequent visits into these wards. So did you think mentally when they were trying to maybe help you or give you tools that in your head you were like nodding along so you could get excused, but you weren't actually trying to learn? Absolutely. You know, the thing is, and I, I talk about this a lot at the moment, is that for majority of that time, I wholeheartedly believed my illness was my identity. Therefore, it would never change. So these people would be teaching me these tools and things like that. And I would sit there with this perspective that you can say all of these things, but this is who I am. Therefore, nothing that you say is going to help because this is never going to change. This is my identity. And so for years, that's what I would go in with. And I wouldn't take on anything that they said. I became very good at knowing what to say to get out of a situation, knowing what to say to get out of a ward and things like that. But I, I wholeheartedly didn't think it would ever, it would ever change. I just thought that would be the reality for the rest of my life. Funnily enough, the thing that actually got me through it the most was not the things in the psych ward, but it was the community of people around me that I chose to fully live in. And I guess as someone who for many years didn't do that and kept everyone at arm's length apart, it made sense that the people or the thing that would help me the most was to actually learn what it was to have community around you and learn what it was to have friends around you and learn what it was to have the kind of love that wouldn't run when things got hard. I want to talk about the final attempt because something beautiful happened there with the officer. And I just would love to share the details of the story because I think this love from human to human, stranger to stranger is something so powerful. And when you told the story, I got chills. In your final attempt, someone saved your life. How did she save it? And what happened in that moment? Okay, so I had basically got to a point again, obviously, where I was like, the world is better off without me. I don't want to be here. And I ran down really late at night to a local park. And I had done that because there were people in my house and I didn't want them to be there. I didn't want them to find me. And so I kind of, I got there and I began the process of trying to take my life. What had happened is that about five months prior to this, I had lost a really good friend of mine to suicide. And I had received her final goodbye message. And then she was missing for 27 hours. And those 27 hours were horrendous. And so I was like, okay, I don't want that to happen for people around me. So what I'm going to do is that I'm going to call the police, tell them where I am, throw my phone and then do it immediately. Because the way that I was going to do it was going to be fast acting. It would work immediately kind of thing. And so I go to do this. And what I didn't realize was that the police were at a job on the other side of the park. And so I thought I'd have, you know, 10 minutes or so to go through with this. And I see flashlights and I'm like, what the frick? Like I literally <laughs> just hung up the phone. And so I immediately 
go to take my life. And what I didn't realize was that there was a police officer directly underneath me that didn't have her torch on. And she heard a in a branch and she was, you know, immediately alerted to it, came in, physically saved my life. So she kind of was holding me up as other people cut me down and and carried me to the police car. And I was kicking and screaming and crying and just like, what I this needed to work. Like, why did you do this? I shouldn't have called you. I was supposed to have taken longer. And I remember she put me in the back of the car and I was kind of like just in a ball crying and weeping and screaming. And she just put her arms around me and just hugged me for ages. And I remember eventually looking up at her and she was just crying. And I was like, why are you crying? Like, I've never seen a police officer cry before, especially over, you know, something like this with me. They usually kind of handcuff you and get rid of you sort of thing. But she was crying and I was like, this doesn't make any sense. And she started saying things like, Jazz, look, I don't know what's happened and what has like led you to be like this, but I can tell you I've only known you for like 10 minutes and I care. I care about you and I, I don't want anything to happen to you. You need to know that there's hope. You need to know that you can get through this. And I was like, you don't know me. Like, why are you saying this? Why do you care? And she just kept saying, I care, I care, I care. We got into the ambulance. Um, so she took me from the cop car to the ambulance and she came with me the whole drive. And then we got to the hospital and she decided to stay. So she took off her vest, her police vest, and just kind of sat on the bed with me and began talking about everything that had happened that had led me to that point. And she began kind of being like, Jazz, if you could do anything with your life, what would it be? And I was telling her about, you know, wanting to get into film and television, but that would be impossible because, you know, all of this stuff has happened. And she just kept being like, no, Jazz, Jazz, there's hope. Like, please don't give up. Please don't give up. And then her shift had ended. She stayed on for like hours after that. And eventually she had to go because it was like 4 a.m. And she pulled out my phone and put her work number in there and then called herself and then so that she had my number. And she said, Jazz, I'm going to message you tomorrow and I just need to know that you're okay. And then I need you to make it to your 21st birthday. And when you do, I'm going to come and celebrate the fact that you're still alive. Like, I believe in you. I know that you're still going to be here. And I was like, mm, whatever. And the next day she messaged me to see how I was doing. And we kind of kept in contact. And then as time progressed, we lost contact naturally. But on my 21st birthday, which was, you know, like a year and a bit after that, there was a knock at my door and it was Constable Campbell. And she was like, I told you if you made it to your 21st birthday that I would come and celebrate the fact that you're still here. And you are. Oh my gosh, that is the sweetest story. And my favorite part is just how humans love humans and you don't need to know someone to care about them. But if anyone, it's like when the dad and the son saw you there in the forest, they could have kept going. He could have seen you from the distance, didn't want his son to be traumatized and said, let's keep going. But we just care for most of most humans care about other humans. I think that's a beautiful thing. And then now you're in your last visit in hospital and you have a moment that changes your life. It was, yeah, it was surreal. I was bawling my eyes out and Esther had come in and why are you crying? And I was like, I am so freaking tired of fighting. And she just looked at me and she went like pretty straight faced, like Jazz, what do you think the definition of fighting is? Because I don't think that you've been fighting. I think you're only surviving. And it's only when you learn how to fight, that's when the change that you're longing to see is going to happen. And I was, I was a little bit offended, not going to lie. 
I was like, I have been fighting so hard for the last nine years. How dare you say I haven't been fighting? And then I, I went back into the, to the psych ward room. I looked up the definitions of surviving and fighting. And the definition of surviving is to continue to live or exist in hardship, manage to keep going in difficult circumstances. And I was like, huh, okay, <laughs> that uh Really, that kind of hits it on the head. <laughs> and you know, having a survival instinct is important, right? Like it's what keeps us going. But the definition of fighting that I saw was to engage in a battle or war, fight to overcome and then destroy an adversity. So a little bit different to surviving. <laughs> it's a little bit different. And so I sat there and I was like, oh, she's right. I, I actually think I've been surviving this whole time. And if She's saying that I learn how to fight and things might change, then I have to do that. I have to learn how to fight because you can kind of get to this point in your journey where you've been like, I've tried everything and nothing is working. And therefore the only option is to not be here. And I think a lot of people, well, like they just accept that this is the way that things are going to be. And I think that goes across for all kinds of mental illnesses and, and battles is that once you try so many different areas of help and nothing's working, you just kind of accept that, okay, well, nothing's going to change, right? And that is surviving. And so when I kind of came to understanding that, okay, if I, if I actually start to fully engage in this thing, because the definition is the word engage, to engage in the battle of war, what does that look like? Will that, 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 that see things change? And one of the things, you know, that we previously talked about was that I would go into these therapy appointments and into the psych ward appointments, and I would not listen to anything that they said because I was like, this is my identity. It's never going to change. But when I started going in with this perception that, okay, maybe, just maybe, this is something that I am struggling with and it's not who I am. Therefore, these people that have studied for five years might know what they're talking about. And I began to take on and actually action the things that they were saying. Things were starting to change. And I would start to do you know, a whole lot of things like writing core belief lists. So I had the beliefs, I'm a bird and I'm unlovable. I would write them down, draw a line on the other side of the piece of paper, write down everything that people said or did that contradicted those beliefs. And it was all of these like proactive things that I was learning. Okay, this is what it is to fight. This is what it is to fight. And I had to do that every day, every single day. But it was really the conversation and I guess the experiences that changed everything. And I began to realize Constable Campbell was on that list. I had written down the things that she had said that night on that core beliefs list. So it kind of all interweaved. And now all of that became such a turning point in your life, given where you are now. And you've founded Voices of Hope. The Dear Suicidal Me video was incredible. And girl on The Girl on the Bridge is your latest, newest film. I say that as if it's a casual <laughs> thing. You are in a film that is premiering everywhere in September when this is out. What is that about and how did you get from starting to turn your life around to actually living out your dreams and doing the damn thing as a film producer, actress, editor, everything <laughs> you're doing now? It was pretty it was pretty crazy and it was also a pretty fast turnaround as well. I had you know, I had always had this dream to be in film and television. So when I started to fight back, uh, one of the things that I decided to do to fight was that I wanted to be proactive and actually trying to chase my dreams. So I enrolled in film school and I actually enrolled in acting for the first like week. And I was like, oh no, I want to go into documentary directing instead because I want to learn how to tell stories that matter. And so I switched over, which there was only one spot left in that course. And so thankfully they let me swap, uh, swap over. 
I think I was about maybe four weeks into doco directing when I directed Dear Suicidal Me, which got 80 million views in the first, like... You were only four weeks in? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Four weeks in and you created that. Yeah. Oh my gosh. And did you just take out loans? You were just like, I'm doing this. I don't care. No, we did the whole thing for free. So I managed to pull in, like the whole thing was made by film school students. So I pulled in people from cameras, lighting, audio, studio hire, um, editing. Like I was, I just hustled hard. We didn't pay a cent for that video. But for school too, did you take out loans to go to this film school? Oh yeah, 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 yeah. Absolutely. But I love that because you, that's something that people would think, oh, I don't have money or I can't do this, or it's going to be such a burden, but you invested in yourself at the time and look Mm -hmm. at how it's paid off. Yeah. And that video is incredible. I watched it today. So people listening, it's called Dear Suicidal Me. Um, It's on the Voices of Hope YouTube. Wow. Four weeks in. That's wild. I would have never thought it was that quick. Yeah, it was pretty crazy. And then because of the success of that video, I had always, my kind of final school project for the year was something I started thinking about in like the very first semester. And it was about a girl called Jess, the one who had taken her life and was missing for 27 hours that I talked about earlier. And I'd always wanted to tell her story. And so I was planning from like the get go, how to do this for my end of year project, uh, my end of year film. And my tutors saw me constantly, you know, I was the first one into school every day. I was the last one to leave. I never went to a single party. I would like be focused on this all the time. And they saw this and they were like, we want to put you forward to pitch your, your idea at like an actual big, like New Zealand's biggest broadcasting pitch. And she was like, they were like, oh, you'll be the youngest person there by far. I've never taken a student, but like, we think this is a really good idea. Um, you've had success with Dear Suicidal Me, like this could be a thing. And I was like, what, what are you, what is happening? And I went to this, this pitching thing and it was like 50 people that were on the panel from like producers to broadcasters, to funders, to like just international people everywhere from the film and television industry. And I was the youngest person there by about 10 years. How old were you at this time? I was 23. Okay. Yeah. And everyone else was like, like, woo. everyone else was like 35 plus, which was you know, like they, they had all made films that all made TV series. And so they put me last. There was like 40 people that I was up against. They put me last and they kind of introduced me as like the student pitcher. She's here to get experience. Be nice to her. <laughs> and I won the whole thing. Yeah, you did. So from that, I became the youngest funded TV director in New Zealand. Um, and I directed the show, Jessica's Tree, which is about my friend. I tried to watch it. It's not available anymore. It's not on YouTube or something. Yeah, it's because it's just being sold to an international distributor. So, um, oh, yes. Okay. Yes. Well, I will purchase when it's back out. <laughs> you will get to see it. But yes. So it's pretty crazy. So that went out and won 15 awards around the world. It won in New York. It won in Barcelona. Like this show was just winning like hot fire, like super, super fast. And at the same time as when someone had said on this producing panel, this needs to be a feature film. And um, I was like, okay, cool. Like what i the longest thing I've ever directed is eight minutes, which is Dear Suicidal Me. So doing something that is 90 minutes is going to be rather difficult. So they pulled in this woman, her name's Leanne Pauley. She's an incredible award-winning director to like consult me on what this film would be. And she sat down and about kind of three seconds in, she was like, oh, no, 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 that's not the film. The film is you. And I was like, "Uh, no, (laughs) no, that's not where this was going. And she was like, no, seriously, Jazz, like this way that you're about to tell the story of Jess and the fact that you and Jess's stories are completely parallel, but she's not here and you are. And what you're about to go through, that's going to be a film. And that's what I think the feature film is. And it took me a solid 
like probably a month to agree to it because I was terrified. And I was like, I don't want cameras following me. I mean, this all happened so sudden. It was like literally within the past year or two, you were at this dark place. And now here you are literally becoming the next big film star in New Zealand. It was, yeah, it was terrifying. And then suddenly there were cameras following me for two years. And, you know, so this, this film, I wasn't allowed to watch it until it had like done its like second or third cut and edit. And so I kind of didn't realize, I guess, the journey that it was going on and what was what was going to actually come into the final cut and what was going to happen. But the film really shows, I guess, they, they call it the pain of advocacy. So I obviously do a lot of stuff on social media and on TikTok, but that is very much like one very, very small part of what I do. I, um, you know, we are kind of advising government and we are fighting with funders and we are talking, you know, we are good friends with Jacinda Ardern, who is our prime minister here in New Zealand, but also... You know, I've addressed the United Nations with the world leaders and the royal family and things like that. But we are constantly fighting this kind of high level stuff whilst also always being on the phone to someone who was about to take their life. And, you know, our systems weren't working. And so it was falling on me and things like that. And so all of that you see in this film, um, the, the pain and the reality of advocacy. That's another thing I wanted to ask you is how do you manage thousands, thousands of messages every day that are people saying, I'm about to take my life. Tell me not to do it, Jazz. And now that is on you. Yeah, so that uh, is one of the most common themes in the film is that at the beginning, because it all happened so fast, I was trying to respond to every single person. And I would, like, the amount of times in the film I'm on the phone to the police, I'm on the phone to the crisis team, or I'm on the phone to someone who's about to jump off a bridge is ridiculous. And what I had kind of learned is that especially as profile began to grow, and what I learned throughout the process of making Jessica's Tree was that I still felt incredibly guilty for Jess's passing and that there was something I should have done to be able to save her because I was this mentor type role. And kind of what I began to realize was that I am not a superhero. <laughs> you know, I can't save everyone. And I physically got to a point where I couldn't see my messages anymore. They, I would open up Instagram and it would just go dun, 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 like I, I, I couldn't. And majority of them were goodbye messages. And so there's now a few kind of different crisis lines that manage my, my messages and stuff because I, I physically can't. Um, and my heart is, you know, breaking because I want to be at the hospital with every single person and helping every single person. But I remember Esther, the same one that had the surviving first fighting conversation, saying to me, Jazz, you can spend eight hours at the hospital with one person fighting for them and that's fine but you can also spend eight hours in parliament fighting for funding and structure change to affect hundreds of thousands and you have to figure out where your influence is best used she was like yeah 100 percent, you can be at the hospital but at this point that is going to burn you out doing both you physically can't because there's not enough hours in the day and she was watching me be at hospital like five six times a week until three, four in the morning and then get up and have to go to work at 8am. Like it was crushing me. So now I have teams who <laughs> manage it. All of this happened suddenly. How did you navigate your own trauma and like the memories of your friend and these messages of people describing what they're going to do? And now you're the person saying, don't do it. When so recently you were the person who was going to do it and still now being so candid about your mental health. What is that flip or that switch been like for you? And do you ever still have days where you have those dark thoughts seep back in? I I don't have the days where the dark thoughts come back in anymore. I definitely have days where it is overwhelming and it is too much to handle. And I, I you know, 
I get overwhelmed looking at my phone and, and things like that. Also, because having been where I've been, I see a lot more than other people do. So example here in Auckland, I've pretty much mapped out how to get to every single bridge in the city if I'm driving on a motorway, because I will see people and it's happened probably like six times where I've been driving and seen someone on a bridge and you just know because you've been there before, oh, they're about to jump. In that instance, do you go out and, and talk yeah. to them? And oh, yeah, 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 absolutely. 100%. Yeah. And I've done that countless times. What do you say? I've always wondered, and I, this is such a great question. I've always wondered if you see someone who's about to take their life off of a bridge, what do you say in that moment? Because I don't know, it could happen to someone listening and you want to save a person. And what do you say? Uh, I mean, it, it definitely changes depending on the person in front of you. And to be honest, I kind of kick in to, I don't even know what kind of mode. And I don't remember a lot of it afterwards because I will just speak and say anything that I possibly can in that moment to get the person back over. But I think the first thing that I learned very quickly was that saying the phrase, it's going to be okay, is probably one of the worst things that you can say in that situation because all that does is minimizes everything that the person is going through in front of you. Like if they are about to take their own life and you're like, it's going to be okay, you're minimizing their pain and you're minimizing everything that's going on. And so I've learned to go, look, I know like you must be struggling so much and I'm so sorry that you're feeling this way, but you, you need to know, like, I've literally been exactly where you are. I've been on this bridge. I've been, you know, and then kind of speaking hope side of it, but also not ever disqualifying or discrediting the things that have led them to this place. Thankfully, I've not had anyone, I've had hundred percent success rate in getting people oh off and down but it's never an easy thing to do, but it's become a frequent part of my life because of my own story. But it's the same with anyone who's battled. You know, when I think of my co-founder, Jen, and, and with eating disorders, we'll be walking around and she'll just see and she'll know. And they might not even necessarily, you know, they don't, because eating disorders, you don't always tell physically. Most of the time you don't, but we'll be sitting down and she'll just see it. And I'm like, I didn't see that. Like, oh my gosh, but it's because she knows and she knows the thought pattern and she knows the faces and the beliefs that you can kind of, pick it out. And it's the same with me with mm -hmm. the suicide. I'll be walking down the street and I'll see someone and be like, they're suicidal because <laughs> you wow. just know. And it's not, I'm not like some, you know, that sounds, it's not like some psychic situation. It's just. Right, just, right, right. Yeah. I understand. Especially I, I think I understand the food one more closer mm -hmm. to home. I can pick it up on people as well, just from my own issues. Last thing, does any part of you feel like you want to be jazz the person not the mental health activist, suicide awareness. Like this is your every day. You are probably saying the word suicide and you're mm -hmm. thinking about people killing themselves. Mm -hmm. Do you ever just want to, you know, not have to think about that? Absolutely. 100%. There are so many days where I'm like, I should have just gone down the studio directing route <laughs> and not have ever done this. And, you know, I, I would be lying to you if I said that I haven't thought about that frequently. But, you know, it's something that um, Jen and I do that we don't ever kind of talk about or broadcast or anything like that. But we volunteer at the, one of the local child psychiatric units here. And so we do that every single week and we go in and we just hang out with the kids and, and stuff. And I think that for me, going in there and seeing these people that are at their, and these, these young people that are at their worst, reminds me of my why. And I've kind of now always said to myself, as long as there is someone sitting in that ward, I will always do this because no one did it for me. And I think that if someone had done this for me when I was 12 years old, it would have saved me, you know, years of going through this. So yeah, there's definitely days that it gets 
a lot. And especially here in New Zealand, because it's so small, I will go out and I will get stopped maybe 20, 30 times a day. And it's not just like a, hey, like I, you know, how are you? Da, da, da. It's, hey, here is my whole life <laughs> And you're story. like about to put the eggs in your grocery cart. <laughs> yeah, like seriously. And like, especially around the premiere stuff, people were coming to the airport and people were finding my hotel and people were doing all these things. And it's kind of weird because there's this kind of status thing that has come with it that I hate. And I'm like, this is strange. I'm literally like known for being alive. Like that's, that's it. And so, you know, there's definitely times where I'm like, I just want to go and work at McDonald's. (laughs) Wow. And do something. (laughs) What you said about giving back to that person who might be you, it just speaks volumes. And your life has always had purpose, but I'm sure that right now you can feel that purpose is so alive and it's so incredible. So inspired. Thank you for sharing everything today. You are absolutely incredible. I know you hear that a lot and you want to work at McDonald's sometimes when you hear that, but you're incredible. (laughs) And I really appreciate talking with you today, Jazz. Thank you so much. If you enjoyed this episode with Jazz, please keep up with her. You can go to her Instagram at Jazz Thornton and follow her and continue watching and rooting for her on her incredible journey. And if you are interested in seeing the new documentary film that Jazz stars in called The Girl on the Bridge, you can learn more about that by going to the Instagram page, The Girl on the Bridge Film, to see where you can watch that. The film is out now everywhere. So please, please go check that out. It's an incredible message. And of course, we want to support Jazz. Everything she's doing is just amazing. Thank you guys so much for listening to this episode of Real Pod. If you're enjoying the podcast and you're coming back each week, please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast. That would mean so much to me. Give it five stars. Write a little something about your favorite episode. And I am just thrilled to have you guys coming back and listening. And I hope you are loving the guests and loving the show. You can follow the podcast on Instagram at RealPod. And you can see behind-the-scenes information and also DM and message about guests you want me to bring on the show and you want me to sit down with because I want to hear from you. Thank you guys so much. Once again, I love having you here each week and I can't wait to see you next Wednesday. And as always, keep it real.